Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. This is the second part of the Oliver Zangwill series and today I'm speaking with Donna Malley, who is an occupational therapy clinical specialist and she's very much interested in a problem that cardiac arrest survivors often report, which is fatigue. So firstly, welcome, Donna. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for having me here. So fatigue, can you tell me how you got into being interested in fatigue and what fatigue is? Certainly. Um, So I've qualified occupational therapist, have been for many years, hence why I've now got the title clinical specialist because I'm terribly old. What uh, we do is we're interested in the things that make it hard for people to participate in the activities that they really enjoy and want to do. I got into um, the field of neurology due to an interest when I was uh, a student and on a student placement and I was fascinated by the brain and what happens when the brain gets injured and one of the things through my career that I started to hear the people I was working with tell me was affecting them was a sense of tiredness or a sense of fatigue that was preventing them from participating in their everyday occupations and in things that were important to them. And so I started to more routinely ask the question, do you experience fatigue at the moment? And the more I asked, needless to say, the more people said, yes, I do. And can you help me understand it? So myself and uh, a colleague at the time that worked here, Jackie Wheatcroft, who was also an occupational therapist, were both embarking on uh, a Master of Studies um, and we both decided to study fatigue after brain injury. Jackie studied it through running an educational group and I studied it through trying to understand what fatigue was in people. So I did some more what we call qualitative research, interviewing people who experienced fatigue and finding out what their experience was like. And that taught me that it's really important to listen to people's individual experience of fatigue. No two people are alike, even though it is a common symptom. Everyone's experience is unique, it's individual, and we need to pay attention to that and not try and do a one-size-fits-all approach to management either. I also did uh, a little study to see what difference mindfulness meditation exercises, if they were done every day, would make. And this was before mindfulness became a a big uh, new intervention that was going to be helpful perhaps for people with a whole variety of, of challenges. And whilst those results were inconclusive, qualitatively, again, some people really engaged with this idea of trying to switch their head off and stay in the moment, which is one of the fundamental principles of mindfulness. And some people were really struggling to do that. And so that made me much more interested in, I really want to understand what's going on with fatigue and what's happening at brain level and what can we do to help people to to learn to manage it, particularly because just giving advice about pacing or exercise or resting more really didn't seem to solve the problems that people are experiencing. It sounds uh, like you're in the perfect place then to uh, 
talk about this. So what are we talking about with regards to fatigue? You know, many people say, oh, I'm tired because I did this exercise or I did had a late night. I've been working hard. Is that fatigue or is that tiredness or what is fatigue? I think we all probably have a sense of what it's like to be tired at the end of uh, a long day or a busy day or a, a working week. The kind of fatigue that people experience who I see, that experience is much, much more intense. It seems to come on quicker and last for longer and it doesn't go away after rest. And so it's qualitatively very different. So I think we probably can have an insight into what it feels like to be fatigued, but we need to multiply that by 100 and imagine somebody experiencing that and the unpredictability of energy levels over over a day or over a week. We need to be able to multiply that 100 times to really start to think that we have some kind of insight into how somebody might be experiencing fatigue on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And are, are there different types of fatigue? There are. There are. When I when I hear people describing fatigue, there are typically uh, three different types. Um, one is probably something we're more familiar with and can describe more easily, which is the physical fatigue that that you get after doing some physical activity and your muscles start to ache or feel heavy and you need to physically stop and rest in order for the muscles to recharge and get going again. The one that the two that people think about that's much harder to to get their heads around is a more of a mental fatigue which is it's hard for your brain to think it kind of it's almost like um, your brain shuts down you're hearing words but you can't process them anymore or that sense of information is going in one ear and out the other and an emotional fatigue as well sort of really hard to manage your your own emotional reactions to things which can become worse after some kind of injury or illness that's affected the brain. So there are three types that are frequently described. In the scientific literature, they tend to talk about uh, a mental fatigue as separate from physical fatigue and talk about it as a peripheral fatigue, which is a, a part of the nervous system that's talking about where it's not within the brain and spinal cord, which is the central nervous system, but it's in the peripheral nerves, for example, in the arms and legs. That's where the fatigue sits. We're talking about today, I think, the more central nervous system or central fatigue, as scientists would refer to it, which tends to be much more to do with mental and emotional fatigue that people are describing, where it's harder to think, harder to regulate emotions, um, an experience of sensory overload at times, less tolerances for, for activities, harder to do more than one thing at once. But it's true to say that scientists haven't yet agreed a definition of fatigue that all therapists and all clinicians and all doctors and medical scientists are in agreement with. And because of that lack of agreed definition, it's very difficult to measure. It's very difficult for us all to speak the same language. And that can make it hard to access help because um, trying to get your message across about how this type of fatigue feels different from like you said your normal everyday tiredness can be really difficult when you're sitting in front of a health professional that explains some of the sort of varying answers that you see and the no definitive help on some of these things so 
going back to or contextualizing it in terms of a cardiac arrest when i spoke to barbara she was saying that you can experience a brain injury typically or they get she got she was taught that after three minutes or so roughly without oxygen to the brain presumably that's a similar sort of experience for fatigue or the, the cause of fatigue do we know what actually is happening to the brain when you're in a state of cardiac arrest or hypoxic state to cause the fatigue in the first place do we know what's happened to the brain well as well as there being different types of fatigue as we just discussed there are also potentially different stages of fatigue which i think is relevant from a cardiac arrest point point of view so there's a kind of primary fatigue which is affects the actual brain cells and how those the physiology of the brain how those cells communicate with one another and then there are what we call secondary aspects of fatigue which is where it's more effortful to do things like it's more effortful to think because of the primary damage caused by the lack of oxygen from the lack of blood supply to the brain in various areas. So it's a kind of like almost like a two-stage process, if you like. And I think we probably know more about step two, the secondary consequences of needing more effort to, to do certain things, whether it be to walk, to talk, to think, than we do about what's actually going on at a primary level. There's lots of research going on. We still haven't quite pinpointed exactly in the brain which area seems to be implicated. But what the um, consensus is at the moment is it's to do with the connections between an area in the brain called the brain stem, which controls quite a lot of our unconscious automatic processes such as breathing, heart rate, swallowing, that kind of thing that we don't consciously think about, we just do. But there's a bit of the brain that controls that, which is clearly really important in the brain stem, which is kind of the back of, sort of, if you like, back of the neck, back of the head, very central, very enclosed. And then over the top of that, you've got the kind of other areas of the brain that do the more conscious thinking and processing of the world around us. And it seems to be that the connections between the brain stem and the areas that control the more conscious thinking, particularly in the frontal lobes, those those roots seem to be damaged in some way. And, and, and for some reason, that contributes to this sense that we're describing as fatigue. But it's still something that, that scientists are scratching their head over and trying to, to make sense of, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. So does that make it difficult to address the actual root of the problem you know absolutely absolutely does and and i think as you said because there's this lack of agreed definition there's a then it's very difficult to measure and research so all of those three things kind of go hand in hand because unless we know what it is we're talking about and how we're going to measure it how do we know whether something is actually going to be helpful or not in changing our experience so I kind of think it's a bit like pain. No no two people's pain is the same. It's very difficult to create a pain scale and say that your 8 out of 10 on a pain scale is the same as my 8 out of 10. I think it's a similar thing with fatigue. It's a very personal experience. It's very subjective. 
a lot of the measures that are used clinically are what we call subjective measures, i.e. it's your personal opinion. Where do you think it sits in relation to what you perceive your energy levels, if you like, to be? But underlying this, what we do know is that there are changes to the brain structurally and in terms of how it works at a chemical or physiological level that are affected as a result of lack of oxygen, which is what's happening in a cardiac arrest. And it's they are contributing to this symptom that we're calling fatigue. Are, are there other things within the picture that we should be taking into consideration? For example, medications, age, the type of damage the person sustained environment lifestyle you know. absolutely and this is where the kind of if you like the secondary fatigue kicks in the idea that it's more effortful to do everyday things so if we imagine that let's use the analogy of a smartphone uh, is probably the the best thing and the smartphone battery you might charge it up overnight and so you've got a full battery during the day well for somebody who's experiencing fatigue after an injury to the brain in this case due to a lack of oxygen they may not actually be starting with a full battery to start off with so sleep hasn't replenished them such as they're they're if you like 100 percent fully charged on their battery would, would we know why that is no no i don't think we do necessarily at the moment so we're starting off if you like with less less than optimal energy And then during the day, we're going to be doing various different kinds of activities which are going to drain our battery in different ways and at different rates. So how we live our lives will have a big impact on how our battery drains, just like different apps on a a smartphone will drain the battery in different amounts. If we just use a a smartphone to make calls, our batteries last likely to last a long time if we're also watching i don't know downloading netflix or something like that other channels are available then then um, obviously it's going to drain the battery that much quicker we may be able to recharge during the day or we may not so that's also going to affect then how we well we function and the less battery we have the, the more it seems to exacerbate some of the other problems that the, that the injury may have caused so concentration even when we have a full battery may not be great but it's really not going to be great when we've got very little battery left it's going to be harder to find the words we want to say harder to concentrate harder to think sometimes it can affect our ability to move around we might find we're we're clumsier we get grumpier quicker a bit like having a shorter fuse and it might sort of set off thoughts in our head and we worry because we know we're not being as effective as we want to be but actually that that worrying in our head is a big sucker of 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 our of our energy and of our battery so there's lots of different things that are contributing to fatigue and one of the things a clinician a therapist needs to do is work out what are the contributing factors for that person and the environment that we're in is very much part of that as well as what we're doing as well as the combination of symptoms we may still have as a consequence of that initial cerebral anoxia i love your your phone battery (laughs) analogy and the way you explained about how it affects people in their actual real world experience as well that was brilliant thank you barbara mentioned about how the memory loss can be affected by or, or your impairment of your ability to remember things or process things 
it, it, would that it can be affected by other things like depression and anxiety and you just sort of mentioned those there is that true of fatigue would that affect memory and would memory affect your fatigue do you think I think yes and I think this is one of the challenges with research it's a bit of chicken and egg um, particularly if I use the case of depression there's been a lot of debate in science about whether fatigue is a symptom of depression so it get they kind of depression causes fatigue or whether actually fatigue contributes to depression and the answer is it's a bit chicken and egg but what we do know is after brain injury that you can have depression without fatigue and you can have fatigue without depression so they're not one in the same thing but they will interact with one another in terms of memory I would say as we get more tired I mean if it probably the for people that haven't experienced fatigue after a cerebral anoxic event, if we imagine we've been out um, and had a really good New Year's Eve and very little sleep the night before, and then we're trying to socialise with friends and family, we might find it's harder to draw on our memory because it's much more effortful, it's more tiring because we're perhaps not fully charged after the night before. So yes, certainly fatigue can exacerbate or make worse problems with memory and then we might get frustrated with ourselves so then we start to get really cross and frustrated and then we're not listening we're not taking in information if we don't take in information we can't remember it and so we end up in this really vicious negative spiral down if you like so it's really messy it's really complicated but at the end of the day, everything we do and, and our body and our minds and our mental and emotional well-being and our physical health all interact. And that's something that I think we need to recognise in healthcare is that interaction. When you've had a cardiac arrest, it's not just about the physical symptoms, it's also about what can then happen mentally and emotionally, either directly or as a consequence of the changes that you find yourself in being different from one day literally to the next and adjusting to that change. And all of that can interact with fatigue in an unhelpful way. Are there any magic pills? Are there any, any things that are, you know, you can say to people, well, if, if you do X, Y or Z... Or is it a much more complex process to be able to um, address the problems that are presented by fatigue? Very sadly, there is no magic pill. Because fatigue is what we call multifactorial, many different things impact on fatigue and, and, and contribute to the experience of fatigue, it kind of stands to reason that there's going to be probably lots of different ways that need to be used in combination and individualised in order to manage a person's fatigue experience. So it's very much about, there are certain sort of practical things we can do, like diet, exercise, all of those things are good things to do, but it often needs to be personalised for that individual as to how they can grade or step the activities, progress the activities from where they are now to where they would like them to be. We don't know whether it's possible yet to fully get back the energy that people had prior to their cardiac event 
the jury's still out on that some people improve over time some people don't maybe notice fatigue as a particular thing until much later down the line as being a, a limiting factor so it's about trying to learn to listen to our own bodies work out how many resources we've got how many certain activities that we want to do are likely to use what can we do to make activities use less resources what can we do to help recharge ourselves throughout the day and what combinations of activities work best together to help us to participate and choose where we want to use our resources rather than necessarily everybody being given the same if you like fatigue management program and expecting everybody to um, improve to the same rate as a result of that unfortunately it's not as easy as that and I, I asked about the magic pill I know, but I know there is a magic pill that works the other way that many cardiac arrest survivors are prescribed with uh, a beta blocker okay which essentially slows the heart down you're, you're trying to protect the heart from working too hard and right taking you into tachycardia or a, a vf which is why heart, a cardiac arrest is caused mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that obviously has a drastic effect of slowing your i guess your metabolism down and makes you even more tired because I, I I was discharged without any medication after my cardiac arrest, but it was only like two and a half years later I had another episode of it where my heart went into a dangerous rhythm. So right. I had to go back and see a consultant, and then they prescribed the beta blocker for me. And within I, using my Fitbit watch, I which measures your sort of resting heart rate, which I think is supposed to be reasonably accurate, I could see that. I lost one beat per day over the sort of 10 days or so that I started off taking it. So my resting heart rate is now roughly uh, between 8 and 10 lower than it used to be prior to that event. And I noticed the effects of that tiredness on top of my fatigue. Is there any way around that apart from going on another medication or reducing that medication? It's... It's possible that some types of medication may contribute to certain side effects that might exacerbate the sense of tiredness that you're experiencing. And I would say talk to your um, doctor about about that because they need to, to work out what the best medication route is for you personally certainly don't stop any medication if you until you've discussed it with your with your doctor but it may well be that the 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 side effects are better than the consequences of not not taking it which is why i think we 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 shouldn't try to attempt a one-size-fits-all approach to fatigue management we should sort of say let's unpick the factors that are relevant for you Let's work out what your triggers are so that we can help you figure out the best combinations of activities, what things are really going to drain you, what things less so. Then we can look at what the environment is like and how do we modify the environment so that you can perform at your best. We need to make sure that you're tuning in to your signals that you're getting tired because some people don't recognise that their battery levels are, are dropping until they've almost gone completely when they don't ne- then have any resources left to stop and think about how can I do this in a different way. They either try and push on regardless or just 
collapse in a heap. Um, and we don't want to get to that level. We want people to kind of almost like be topping themselves up every time we creep near halfway on the battery levels. We also need to recognise that there are different reasons why we might respond in different ways. A lot of the time, we don't know how else to do anything different than how we used to do things before. So if we were somebody that perhaps um, never listened to our bodies before anyway, and were workaholics and constantly pushed ourselves, and that's what kind of almost kind of drove us, that's the kind of person we are, it's going to be very difficult to turn around to that person and say, I want you to be taking a rest every, every so often. And that might not fit with who that person is. and and that might not fit with their lifestyle so we have to get to know people as people and what makes them tick in order to try to come up with the right kind of fatigue management strategies that are going to suit them and their lifestyle so there are some practical things we can do as we said about you know maintaining a healthy lifestyle and there's lots of useful tips on the nhs website about living life well and things that we can do good diet and exercise and what have you but then we probably need a package which addresses the cognitive symptoms the emotional changes uh, the psychological changes and an adjustment process that life is different now and the huge number of changes that might go along with that in people's lives some people might not be able to go back to work some people then might have financial worries so it's messy and all of these things will contribute to the symptom we call fatigue so we're actually needing to address some of those factors as well as the actual if you like underlying level of 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 tiredness as if it's a thing in the body that we can change it's actually a combination of the life we're leading and the things that we want to do and not feeling like you have the resources to actually fulfill that you, you, you brilliantly preempted my my next question sorry about, about that <laughs> <laughs> about about you we talked about a little bit about it about the vicious circle of recognizing the the fatigue within yourself and i was very much not doing that in my early probably the first year or two and I would very much go into a boom and bust type cycle where you think you're you're doing fantastic and you go out for a walk or do some exercise do some work cook a dinner and then all of a sudden bam you can't move you can't think you're shouting at people you're causing arguments and yeah I think you it was have you got any tips that people can take home to sort of help recognize what those um I signs think, are yeah i think that number one they are very personal but some of them might be things that you recognize that when you felt tired prior to the cardiac arrest but try to tune in on uh, what's happening to my thinking skills am i finding it harder to concentrate am i losing track of information am i finding myself getting quite distracted what's happening to my ability to problem solve and make decisions is that becoming harder that might be a sign of fatigue on top of the existing difficulties that you might experience from the cerebral anoxia what happens to my speech? Am I starting to slur my words? Is it harder to find the things that are on the tip of my tongue? What's happening to my senses? Am I finding it harder to see sometimes? So for one lady, and this is a, a lady who had really significant difficulties reading what her body was telling her because 
her stroke in this case actually had affected her her ability to interpret her own bodily sensations so she couldn't tell when she was hungry or thirsty or tired or hot or cold or in pain her body wasn't registering those signals um, and therefore she didn't take action until other signs emerged like as you can imagine so so what we did for her was we she recognised that she had a business card that she carried around in her purse. And when she felt fairly well for her, she could read that the, the text on the business card. When she was getting tired, if she got the business card out, she couldn't focus on the text to read it. And so that was a very external sign for her that she was potentially getting tired. And so we actually used that as a cue because she couldn't trust her own internal body signals. And that can be a consequence of certain types of brain injury, depending on where in the brain has been uh, affected. So it's about working out um, what your personal warning, warning signs are. And sometimes that might mean asking people around you. Sometimes other people do spot your fatigue before you might notice it yourself. And so together coming up with, with, with some fairly reliable indicators of when you're really, really, really tired. And then perhaps thinking back to, OK, so if that's my battery when it's almost empty, if we use that analogy again, how might I feel or what might I notice if I was about half full? What should I be looking out for? Because actually that's the take action zone. If we had a traffic light where where green is good to go, fully charged or as charged as we can be, and red is pretty empty and really, really tired, what would amber look like? What would about halfway look like? That's the time to take action. Don't wait till it gets to red because then we don't have the resources then to really stop and think about doing things in a different way. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And are there, if we do recognise that we're getting to amber uh, or a little bit below, what should we do? It depends on where you are and what you're doing. So, again, we can't do one size fits all, but this is where we need to then build up a kind of fatigue management toolkit. So is it possible to curtail what you're doing, finish it off or take a small break? Maybe walk outside for a breath of fresh air, stay hydrated, take a glass of of water. It depends on what's draining us as to how we might recharge that energy. So when it's something physical, sitting down and stopping moving will obviously help with physical fatigue. But if sitting down means that our brain carries on thinking, it won't help recharge us from a mental perspective. And this is where things like mindfulness meditation or, or sitting listening to some calming music or sounds of nature and whatever might be helpful for some people. So it's about working out what recharges us, what are some of the quick fixes that will just keep us going. But if we're in the middle of a supermarket with, with small children and we're in the middle of our shopping, we can't just suddenly stop we might have to push through but then it's about sort of saying do I have enough energy to push through and then I might need to curtail at a safer point and when is that safer point do I need to go and have a cup of coffee in the cafe before I try and drive home for example so it very much needs to be tailored according to what you're doing and 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 what's appropriate at that point in time and having a what we call a toolkit of, of strategies to, to to sort of pick and choose from at the right time and sometimes there is nothing we can do but can 
carry on just because of the situation we're in and then we might need to postpone things later on in the day or later on that week in order to recover. Yes, I totally agree. It's a, it's a great idea, the toolkit of rather than just sort of having one thing for all scenarios. Yeah. And what you said there about the having to push on, I was explaining to you earlier, well, I was at a conference and it was several days of quite intense meetings and talking and socialising. And I pushed on through all of that mm. and I had a great time. But then I ended up spending about two or three days in bed, basically, because I couldn't sustain a normal life after that. Yeah. But I find that that is, uh, I'm sort of five and a half, almost six years now on. And I've gone through the, I didn't get any um, OT or therapy or rehab. And I've, I went through the boom and bust and learning to recognise the signs, although I didn't always take action at those signs uh, and I think that's an important part to actually learn I think sometimes you're a little bit too pig-headed to feel like oh, I shouldn't be feel like I need to go and have a lay down or uh, it, it, it's a difficult sort of scenario especially when you want to you still you I get people telling me I'm young I don't feel young anymore but, <laughs> but they say oh you're going for a cardiac arrest or heart attack as they often say but yeah. um so you feel like you want to be doing those things Absolutely. but you don't always want to have to feel like you're going to give in to it but I do know now that if I have a, a I used to do it a lot not so much these days but I, I feel like I'm I get to about seven o'clock and I fade away and then once I'm on the sofa at seven o'clock I generally don't move off of the sofa which is possibly not the the best thing whereas I have done a period where I I would do activity in the morning and then I would have a sleep for half an hour or an hour around lunchtime and then I would have a, an extra boost in the afternoon I'd feel more energized and I would still sleep normally as I was saying to you I, I my lights go out and that's it I'm normally stay asleep until I wake up and then but I don't feel energised, as you were mentioning earlier. Although your battery may be full in the morning, it's not necessarily as full as a normal person's exactly, battery would exactly, be. Exactly. <clears throat> and I think as well, you know, people mustn't beat themselves up for sort of pushing through or, or feel it's a failure to, to, to take a rest. It's about recognising that, you know, your brain is working much, much harder to process all the information in the environment around us when basically there are lots of roadworks, if you like, in the brain that are making it really hard for those messages to get through. And your brain needs time to process that information and it needs the right amount of energy to process that information. And we need to think about alternative ways other than, you know, maintaining our diet and, 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 and giving ourselves energy that way in order to cope with the day-to-day -day demands it now faces with, if you like, fewer resources to, to, to cope with. And it's perfectly normal and natural that after the cardiac arrest, we're going to try and go back to doing things how we did before. You know, they worked for us before. Why wouldn't they work for us now? They're coping skills that we've honed over our lifetimes, short or long. And so we are naturally going to try and 
dig, dig back into our old toolkit of coping strategies. It's just that some of those might now no longer be fit for purpose. But often we need to, to, to find that out in order to go, oh, OK, why isn't that working? How do I make sense of that? Do I need to seek help to help me f- develop new new ways of coping that I still feel comfortable with and that I still feel like they're me? And this is where the individualized approach comes from. We, you know, a, a, a cardiac arrest happens to a person. We're not all robots. We don't all operate in the same way. We don't all do things in the same way. We also don't all like to be told what, what to do. So it's it's a process of learning and discovering for ourselves what's going to work for ourselves. That's really interesting what you say there because I did do, I uh, interviewed someone recently and he, after his cardiac arrest, he changed his life. So did, it, did this, did that, and then found that he didn't like who he'd become. And then he's gone back on all of those habits, back to how he was before. And most, I think he would have recognised they're not perfect and they're not good for a long life, as it were. But he, he just says, you know, that's how I want to live my life. I feel comfortable with myself doing that. Perhaps, I, I don't know if he had he saw someone like you, but perhaps he, he maybe need, needed to see someone like <laughs> you to help find that that route to what the perhaps a, a better life would be from a health point of view but also one that he could live with with himself yeah. it's a bit like the, i suppose diets and things like that everybody's got a different technique that they're trying to sell but you have to work out what's going to suit you best there are clearly some principles that are likely to be helpful for most people but just you know what we know is that knowing what we should do that you know eating all our fruit fruit and veg a day and and being healthy and going to the gym is easy to say we can learn it but it's very difficult sometimes to actually implement that and put that into practice and that's where for some people they may need a little bit of extra support to understand why that might be difficult for them and and come up with something collaboratively with the therapist that that's going to enable them to live the life that they want to lead in the best way and make an informed choice an informed decision it's their life to lead not not ours to tell so how would someone get to see someone like yourself occupational therapists work in the community throughout the whole country i would imagine because they're at the moment that the way services are organized within the nhs you tend to have mental health services slightly separate from physical health services i'd like hopefully that will change in the future but i would say Go and speak to your GP and ask to see an occupational therapist. I suspect probably neurology-based OTs who understand what can happen as a result of changes in the brain, nerves in the brain, and that's where the neurological specialism aspect comes from, may be uh, 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 well-placed to help you make sense of this kind of fatigue after an injury. There are occupational therapists that work in cardiac rehabilitation domains. There are also occupational therapists that work in uh, a field called neurology, which is to do with the nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, uh, a part of that. And therefore, occupational therapists with experience or specialism in neurology 
would also be well placed to try to help you make sense of what's happening at brain level, why you're experiencing some of the symptoms you are, for example, with memory difficulties and the practical issues that can cause with planning and organising and having short views and saying the wrong things at the wrong time and and with the fatigue that that often goes along with that and help you to develop a a personalised toolkit of strategies. For many people, they can uh, seek self-help information through organisations such as Headway, the Stroke Association. Your organisation, I'm sure, has got information about, about fatigue. There's a lot of information, leaflets out there now, which might, might be helpful to look at, even if the, if you like, the diagnosis is, is different. It may well be that some of the information resonates and can be really helpful. In order to come to a place like the Oliver Zangwill Centre, your GP would need to uh, refer you. And if you live out of our local catchment area of Cambridgeshire, then there, there's a sort of probably fairly lengthy funding process that people might have to, to go to or people can refer themselves to us privately here. With regards to OT, you mentioned some that have a sort of specialisation in yes. uh, neurology. Uh, how how often, how many are, are there of those? I mean, what sort of ratio? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. I think there's around about ten thousand occupational therapists registered with our professional body. I'm actually chair of our of the. Royal College of Occupational Therapy Specialist Section Neurological Practice, which covers brain injury, long-term neurological conditions like Parkinson's or, or multiple sclerosis and stroke. And our specialist section, which is you, you, you join voluntary, has 800 occupational therapists as members, so they have expressed an interest in, in this. So it's hard to know exactly how many there are around, but they should be around in your in your area. Occupational therapists, certainly, it may be slightly harder to find specialism, but there should be some in each area of the country. And ask your GP if you can see one, um, because they're wonderful. <laughs> so hopefully... If you wanted to see one, you can get to see one and a specialist one as well. But if you can't, what can you do to help yourself in terms of in terms of your fatigue? What can you 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 mentioned some things about diet and sort of what knowing the signs of when you'll get. So number one, try to figure out what you think might be contributing factors. And that might be sort of like, do I feel that my mood is is lower or am I a bit more anxious than I should be? If you are likely, they are things that are going to be contributing to your fatigue. Am I uh, taking certain medication where it might be that drowsiness or tiredness or sleep is affected? And should I talk to my GP about that? Am I experiencing problems with moving around? Am I experiencing problems with thinking? If I'm experiencing problems that are more physically in origin, can I uh, develop with support an exercise program? Do I need to see a physio or a personal trainer to optimise my physical conditioning? If it's difficulties with more what we call cognitive or thinking skills, again, a neurological OT or a clinical psychologist would would have lots of useful ideas about how to help manage those challenges but all of those challenges together means that my what I'm trying to do is more effortful. So how can I make things less effortful? Uh, 
less effortful. Yes, that's right. So things like if my memory's a bit dodgy, I might need to rely more on memory aids and writing things down, which A, means that I'm processing it more at the beginning because I'm having to write it down somewhere. But B, also means that hopefully I will make fewer memory slips and therefore I won't get into a cycle of then beating myself up and thinking I'm an idiot. And therefore, um, hopefully I'll, I'll be on a spiral of success rather than a negative spiral that's actually draining me more. So using strategies to help with thinking, healthy lifestyle, getting a good night's sleep and seeing your doctor if, if that is problematic because um, sleep-wake cycles can be affected as a result of the cerebral anoxia but also it may be that there is a pre-existing sleep disorder that is eminently treatable that could also be have hidden away that is, is now become evident. The environment, what can I do to reduce what my brain is having to pay attention to in the environment? So where you sit in a room, the temperature it's at, the lighting, the amount of noise around can make a huge difference to our thinking processes and the effort it takes. So sometimes just thinking about is is this environment conducive to taking in and processing information or should I maybe try and turn the radio off if I'm having a conversation or stop watching the telly? for example, but just really try to notice things that cumulatively mean that your brain is really finding it hard to process information and see if you can reduce the amount of information it's having to process at any one time. Mm -hmm. So that's talking about things like using up your energy. Are there anything you can help um, boost that battery during the day? You've said about taking a rest and I mentioned about how I've had a little... I would have a little nap, which would help. But what about diet, which you sort of touched on? Things people may be tempted to go to the biscuit tin for a bit of sugar. Yeah, well, yes. Yes, do as I say, not as I do here, because I'm a bit of a biscuit fiend. But basically, we we need to try to eat more, if you like, slow-release carbohydrates, which can help maintain our energy levels rather than hit the sugar button through sort of like biscuits or sweets or cakes, which will give us an, an initial boost in energy but then it will also give us a very quick afterwards slump in energy so this is about trying to maintain our energies at a reasonable level so slow release carbohydrates and nuts and things which actually sustain our energy over time would be better things to reach for than than biscuits keeping hydrated is really important i don't think any of us probably drink enough water during the day and that's really important for good brain functioning There's a lot of debate about having naps in the day. Personally, I think if somebody needs it, they should have it. But if you have a nap um, after four o'clock in the afternoon, it's likely that that will impact on your brain's desire to get off to sleep later on and therefore affect your sleep overnight. So what you're trying to do with your brain is is get it into a good habit. So knowing when it needs to be awake and alert and uh, knowing when it needs to be kind of winding down and shutting down. And so taking a nap, a short nap, most people say sort of a power nap of less than 30 minutes in the afternoons, roughly the same time each day will help our brain because our our brain naturally sort of um, slumps after lunchtime anyway. We need more siestas, I think, in, 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 in the UK. That, that should be okay. 
provided we don't sort of nap all over the over the place and confuse our brain and this is why things like holidays periods of time and um, weekends where our natural structure and routine can really throw us out of our natural rhythms and are quite hard for people following brain injury to to, to cope with and really exacerbate fatigue that lack of structure as well mindfulness meditation can be really helpful for some people it's a skill that has to be learned it's not an easy thing to do but with perseverance it can can be really really helpful or other ways that people relax but I think things like going out for a walk change the environment change the activity a breath of fresh air but it's finding out what your personal recharge toolkit is and that takes time to sort of gather that information and again so that you can pick and choose the right tool for the right environment on the right day. There are things that can help us but what about things that people are attempted to pick at like you mentioned biscuits. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that one since you've got a big bottle of water next to you. <laughs> but, um, the, the caffeine and, uh, and maybe alcohol as well. Again, on the NHS website, there's advice about diet and, and getting a good night's sleep. If you get the best night's sleep you can, that's going to be a real help with energy levels through the day so things like not taking alcohol late at night not eating big meals late at night reducing caffeine and and i think there's a i don't know if there's an agreed time of the day when we shouldn't sort of take caffeine but i'd say definitely not past four o'clock and probably maybe uh, early afternoon we, sh- we shouldn't be taking in in caffeine because that's a stimulant i did work with somebody who used to drink an awful lot of caffeinated fizzy drinks that are now widely available and wondered why he couldn't sleep after 15 cans of those um, and why he was so tired all the time but so it might be a, a short-term quick fix and in some cases it might be necessary because that's all we talked about how the environment might constrain other ways of coping with it but it's not it should not be a kind of first reach thing or you shouldn't get into a habit of doing it no <laughs> and, and uh, red bull and monster drinks are... yes yes other other caffeinated drinks are available and though really try not to rely on those and if you find that you are that might be one of your warning signs that you're you're reaching for those you know reaching for the biscuit tin or reaching for that cup of coffee or or that that caffeinated fizzy drink that might be one of your signs that you know perhaps I'm at amber on my battery or dropping a little bit and therefore I need to sort of choose an alternative tool from my toolkit so I think I'm coming to the end of my questions here but one thing that I I said to Barbara is how I feel that my or I see many other people, uh, their their memory improves over time uh, after the initial event, the the cardiac arrest and the impact of it. I mean, my memory was terrible back then, but I would say it's better now. And I used to have problems with speech and uh, reading and things like that, which she said are connected with um, the memory. But fatigue, I think for me, it got better a bit, but I don't feel like I've improved as I would have liked to have improved since I've been active and doing things and I feel like I can manage my time better and I do recognise the, the fatigue when it's coming. I don't always adjust what I'm doing to that, but can it get better? 
I think, as we were saying earlier, it's unclear. For some people, their fatigue might improve over time. But I think it's sort of caught up in this. Sometimes we may not be aware of fatigue early doors. And then later on, as we start to try to re-engage with with our old activities, that's when we realise that it's not so easy and that the fatigue that perhaps was always there is only starting to come to light as we try to do more things. For some people, fatigue may well be improving but it's masked by the fact that as soon as people have more energy, they tend to do more. So one of the things that I might suggest for you, Paul, is although it feels like your fatigue isn't changing, perhaps you're actually doing much more complex things now compared to what you were doing uh, a couple of years ago because you have more energy to do it it's it's normal at the end of a day to be tired we're not trying to sort of avoid all tiredness altogether what we're trying to do is say I have some resources they're going to get used where do I want to use them so that I feel I'm living the life that I that I want to lead so it's complicated to sort of actually because it's hard to measure etc etc it's really hard to sometimes track whether it's fatigue that's changing or whether it's people adapting to use their resources better that's changing and I suspect it's probably a combination of the two mm-hmm. but- I, I think a big thing that I did want to add add in is about sort of the importance of sharing your experience with others around you and how to describe fatigue to other people whether that be your friends and family but it could also be if you're back at work work colleagues and how to make sense of it in a way that's going to make make sense to them and one of the analogies it's actually come from I think somebody who is experiencing something called lupus which is a, a, a different medical condition one of which the symptoms is is very extreme fatigue and they use an analogy which I think has has been in the literature now it's it's sort of known as the spoons theory and if you google spoons theory you'll see lots of references to this and it developed from a, a person who was trying to explain to her friend what it feels like to live with fatigue on a day-to-day basis and the basic premise is that we have she was happened to be at a restaurant at the time and so she she grabbed a lot of cutlery and spoons together and she said imagine that if I give this cutlery to you this is your energy that you have for the day and then she said talk me through your day and so as the as the her friend was talking her through the day she said right give me a spoon right give me another spoon give me another spoon and eventually that person ran out of spoons but had only got part way through the day and she was and it was a sort of very visible way of her trying to recount how that how that felt and um, a number of people have used that analogy with a range of different medical conditions but i do it, it's it's very vivid it's very real it doesn't have to be with spoons but it, it it's that idea of bringing to life that you know we have so much energy and and, and you're constantly having to think about how to use that energy in the best way and how effortful it is to have to go into every day thinking about that. And some days you've got more spoons or energy than, than others and, 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 and trying to help other people understand that and the choices that you, you have to make. That can, be, that can be quite a helpful analogy to think about as well as the smartphone analogy too. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's really powerful, especially to stop people thinking that you're being just being lazy or absolutely not being lazy. And and I get very cross when 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 I hear that. But I can understand that that's what people might think because it's very difficult to see and it's very difficult to get other people to understand that the kind of fatigue you're experiencing is different to the kind of fatigue that other people may have had before a cardiac arrest and that's why I said it is qualitatively different it's much more intense it's much more powerful much harder to predict we still don't know very much about it there's lots of little things we can do that together might help us to do the things that are important to us but it is tricky to work out what's the right thing to do for you as an individual so and it's constant learning curve so just keep keep going with that and if you can bring somebody along the way with you to help you to learn and and work out what you can add to your toolkit then then that would be great I was going to finish off by asking if you had any any tips for people and you sort of summed those up already (laughs) (laughs) you got anything else or no just just good luck and and don't don't be put off if people sort of say oh yeah I get tired too or oh well you just have to live with it well there is help out there please ask for it please push to to speak to an occupational therapist about how to manage fatigue it's a real thing it's it's something that is going to impact on every aspect of your life it's something that should be taken seriously there is help out there it's a collaborative process and it's an individualized process please seek help that's brilliant thank you very much for this conversation it's worn me out but uh. yeah sorry about that need to go and have a lie down in the dark room (laughs) and a biscuit (laughs) thank you paul thanks very much and hopefully people will enjoy this and get something from it and maybe you and other ot's will be getting some calls throughout the country hope so (laughs) thanks a lot bye-bye This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast and I'd love to know what you think. You can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org and you can find us by googling Southern Cardiac Arrest UK or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe, and I'll speak to you next time.